we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today. We've taken about a four or five week break or something as we kind of did Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and then uh, a follow-up to Resurrection Sunday and then Pastor Nick being here preaching last week. But we've been doing this series through the book of Acts. So go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter 9 where we're going to pick it up today. Have you ever watched, as you're turning there, have you ever watched an artist... Uh, I'm not an artist uh, myself at all, uh, but I love watching art being made. And maybe you've had the opportunity to watch somebody paint something on a canvas live. For some of you, when I said that, you're thinking about Bob Ross just now. Uh, that's not what I'm thinking about. There's this one time that I got to go watch a guy do this live painting where, I mean, so he was on a stage and everybody's around. Everything is dark and there's different colored lights kind of coming at him. And, uh, and there's music going on that's kind of like going along with the kind of strokes that he's making. So it's almost like a mixture of like dance and art and like all this stuff. He's using all these different techniques. And it was fascinating to watch. But as the music kind of changes and he steps back away from the easel and the canvas that he was working on, I'm looking at it and I think everybody else too kind of looking at it like, that was really cool, but what is that? And then the music changes again after we've had some time to look at it. And he walks back up to the canvas and rotates it around 180 degrees to find out there's an image there that is absolutely beautiful. And he painted the whole thing upside down. And only when it's turned upside down does it all finally start to make sense. You ever seen anybody do anything like that? It's on YouTube, sure, surely. There's probably lots of people doing it on YouTube and you can check it out. But as we get to know Jesus in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it seems that as Jesus comes, we find so many things turned upside down. Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Yet, He's born to a teenage virgin virgin, and laid in an animal's feeding trough as a baby. That Jesus really is Israel's Messiah, but when He comes... The people to whom he speaks most harshly are those who consider themselves to be the most holy religious leaders in that very people group. And those that he seems to lift up are the ones they would consider unclean outcasts and suffering sinners. He turns things upside down. And then even towards the end of his ministry, rather than being crowned as king, he is stripped of his clothing, a crown of thorns put upon his head, executed between two criminals on a cross. And then everything gets turned upside down when on the third day he's raised from the dead. So we are now in the sequel to Luke's Gospel, the book of Acts, and we've seen as we've walked through Acts, also things being turned upside down and starting now to make sense. The disciples in the very first chapter, remember their question to Jesus, Is this now, because Jesus has been raised from the dead and he hasn't ascended yet, and their question is, is this now the time when you restore the kingdom to Israel? They're waiting for him to start accomplishing military and political victory. But then he turns things upside down and the kingdom is going to start to expand when? When the king leaves, right? And sends his Holy Spirit. And the church... You would expect, well, how is the church supposed to expand from a small group of people in the city of Jerusalem to go all the way to the ends of the earth? How's that going to happen? 
Well, you would think maybe they got to have a, a meeting where they have, you know, lay out their mission statement and vision statement and values, and right? Isn't that how the church expands? But instead, things are flipped upside down and the church expands when the church gets persecuted. They start killing Christians, and that's how the church expands to the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 9, which we've been in more recently, there's this big turning upside down as the life of one man is turned around. A man named Saul, who was one of the chief persecutors of the church, right? And what we see happening in chapter 9 is his conversion. He becomes family with the kind of people he once had murdered. And he gives his life to building up a church that he had once given his life to destroying everything, getting turned upside down. And when we left off in Acts chapter 9, the last verse we looked at was Acts chapter 9.31, which is a beautiful summary verse of what's happening at this point in the life of the church. Before I read the passage for today, I want to look at verse 31. Here was that summary verse that said this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so today we're picking up from there. What happens next? We're going to hear a lot about Peter again. And maybe, maybe it didn't even occur to you, but we've, Peter was like a main character in chapters 2 through 5. And we haven't heard anything about Peter all through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and most of chapter 9. And now all of a sudden we're going to hear something from Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, again. And here's what we're going to see today, I think. We're going to see Jesus' work continuing to turn things upside down, working through disciples like Peter. And we're also going to jump into the first verses of chapter 10. We're going to do the rest of the chapter next week, but we're going to look at the first few verses of chapter 10 as we anticipate a major turn in the life of the church, which we'll see over the coming week. If you're able to, our custom is that we stand because we believe this is the very Word of God and we want to signify that by doing something different, not just sitting, but standing out of respect, humbling ourselves before God. I'm going to pray first and then read the Word of God. Father, we do want to have that posture of coming before You humbly because we recognize You for who You are and we are amazed that You have spoken. And that your Holy Spirit continues to work through your word to build up your church. Father, I'm weak. And I'm unable to accomplish anything that should be accomplished today. But I know you're able. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. So beginning in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, here's God's word. Now. As Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So 
Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And be seated. In order to help, uh, maybe to understand things, maybe it's helpful for you not just to listen, but also to write. And so inside the bulletin that you picked up when you came in are the sermon notes page along with the life group guide for those groups that are meeting during the week. First point in there is just this, turned in Lydda, a paralyzed man walks. It's a really short account, just four verses, 32, 33, 34, and 35. When the book began, Peter was with the other disciples in Jerusalem. And every time we see Peter up till this point in the book of Acts, that's where he's hanging out. He's in Jerusalem. But now we get to chapter 9 and we find that Peter's been doing a little bit of traveling. He's been doing ministry in places other than just in Jerusalem. Verse 32 tells us that Peter went here and there among them all. And he came also to the saints who lived at Lydda. I didn't put a map up on the screen, but you can imagine a map with me. He's in Jerusalem. That's where most of the believers are located. Lydda is a town 20 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem, okay? So he's coming down, not, not necessarily down on a map, but down in elevation to this city of Lydda. And there he finds a man, and the man's name is Anita, Aeneas, and the man's struggle is this. He's been bedridden for eight years, paralyzed. Now, in the time that the disciples walked with Jesus, did they ever come across people who were paralyzed? A time or two, right? And when they did, when they walked with Jesus, what they often got to witness is Jesus healing somebody who was unable to walk, right? So they've seen this multiple times. You could actually go back. We're not going to do it now. It's in your life group guide. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 9... So we're in Acts 9, but if you went back to Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, you would find out that Jesus heals a paralyzed man and says to that man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so now, here Peter comes upon a man named Aeneas who's paralyzed. He's like, oh, 
I know what to do. Right? So here's what he does. Peter said to him, verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Quick side note. I don't know that I know the answer to this, but could just anyone have healed this guy? Like, let's say Aeneas is married. If his wife would have walked up to him and said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Take up your mat and walk. If his brother would have done it, like, would would that have worked? I, I don't know. What we do know from Scripture, and again, you could go back to another chapter 9, this time Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says this, And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So at least it seems that Jesus gives this special authority, not to every believer, but he does in Luke chapter 9, give this authority to do this kind of miraculous healing work to those 12 disciples. And Peter's one of them. And so we see him exercising that authority given to him by Jesus here in Acts chapter 9. And the result is certainly good for Aeneas. Imagine yourself being paralyzed and laying in a bed for eight years. And now you can walk. That's a, that's a good day for Aeneas. Aeneas is having a very good day, right? But he's not the only one. This is a pattern we're going to see. We've seen it in the Gospels and we've seen it already in Acts. God's miraculous work in one individual is used in order that many might benefit. Because did you see what the next verse says? Verse 35, it says this. It says, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So it's not just one man's life getting turned upside down. It's this whole region, these people seeing what is being done, and now they too are turning to the Lord. Turned in Lydda. But there's more. Now we're going to move to a different location. We do that in verse 36, where it tells us this. Now there was in Joppa. Now, if you're picturing a map again, we said 20 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem is Lydda. Another 10 miles further would be the town of Joppa. Okay, that would have been on the Mediterranean coast. So that's where this lady lives. We learned some things about her. She's a disciple. Okay? A disciple. We learned her name. Her name is Tabitha, which that's an Aramaic name. That's the language Jesus would have spoken, but the more common language at the time. Uh, for more kind of universal trade, would have been Greek. And so we're also given her Greek name. And her Greek name is Dorcas. And I don't know if any of you had that on your list of potential baby names uh, when you were looking for uh, that at one point. But both of those names, when translated, would just mean, in our language, gazelle. Okay? We're given both names. And then we're told this about her. So we know already she's a disciple. And then this is still in verse 36. It says, She was full of good works and acts of charity. Just think about that for a moment. If if, if they're writing your obituary someday, which they're going to be doing here in a second, I think, because of what we read in the next verse. 
and they're describing you, and they're summarizing your life. Listen to this summary of her life. She's a disciple of Jesus, full of good works and acts of charity. Right? That'd be a pretty good summary, right? And so that's how Dorcas is known. But I mentioned obituary because of what we read in verse 37. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Presumably, she died in the morning because they would, it would have been in their custom because they couldn't do embalming kind of stuff. They would wash a body, lay it in a room until just before sundown, they would go and bury the person who had died. So there's a sense of urgency. And we're told this in verse 38, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. So I want you to picture this, okay? Peter's just coming into town, 10-mile walk. This lady likely had died that morning, and there's people gathered around her dead body. Who's gathered around Tabitha's dead body? It says, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. We can maybe assume, I can't say for sure, but it sure seems that they would have done this because it seems that Tabitha would be the kind of person, based on the description we have of her, full of good works and acts of charity, that she likely had used the gifts she had to make things like tunics and other garments for these widows. And again, in that day, a a widow would have been at a pretty desperate spot because a a woman would have been dependent on her father or on her husband to gain any sort of income. So if you became widowed, you would suddenly have no source of income. And so you would be in a very vulnerable kind of situation. But Dorcas, a woman full of good works and charity who follows Jesus, seems to use the gifts she has to make garments and tunics for other people. So they are sad. They, they were loved well by this lady, and now she's dead. So they're gathered around her body, and they're weeping, and Peter walks into the room. Now I want to note what Peter does when he comes in the room. It says in verse 40, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. (laughs) She's just dead. Was dead. Now she opens her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So they leave the room with Peter and a dead body. And when Peter lets them back in, it's Peter and Tabitha hanging out. Right? That, that's what just happened. And again, I told you earlier, go to the beginning of Matthew 9 to see Jesus and the disciples encountering a paralyzed person. I'd encourage you to go back again to Matthew chapter 9, a little bit later in the chapter. Matthew 9, 18 to 26, where you read an account of Jesus encountering somebody who has died. And whom he raises from the dead. Now, Peter doing something very, very similar. Everything turned upside down 
You've got a paralyzed man walking. You've got a dead woman standing up. You've got weeping widows now rejoicing. Everything's getting turned upside down. And then this one miraculous thing, certainly turning upside down the life of Tabitha, also has an effect on many other people. Because look at the very next verse again, verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Just as in the previous community, miraculous work leads to many turning to the Lord, here too, many are now turning to the Lord. And then he tells us, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, So, Peter's in Joppa. Here's like Bible trivia question, not for you right now. You might think of it right now. You might have to do some work on this this week. Okay, But kids, adults, you can all try to figure this out. Okay, Peter is in Joppa. In the Old Testament, one of God's prophets also spent a little bit of time in Joppa, and he has a lot of similarities to Peter, as we're going to find out in the next couple chapters. Who was that prophet? All right, this Bible trivia question. Uh, We're going to look more at that again next week. Well, let's let's go on and look at these first verses of chapter 10. The worlds of two individuals have been turned upside down. Aeneas, paralyzed, now walking. Tabitha, dead, now raised from the dead. People in Lydda, Sharon, and Joppa, their lives turned upside down as they now turn to the Lord. The disciples of Jesus are being His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. And these first verses now in chapter 10, they're going to set up for us what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. And what we're going to see over the next couple of the weeks is a major turn of events in all of church history. And it's going to begin with one man in Caesarea. So, that's where we start. Let's just do kind of the intro to this before I get to a couple points of application, and then we'll continue next week. In Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. That's Caesarea of the Roman Empire, capital of Judea. Okay? We know a few things about this guy. What do we know about this guy? Well, his name is Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So here's what we know about the Italian cohort. The Italian cohort is a military unit made up of 600 men divided into six groups of 100 men. Each of those six groups of 100 men would have been commanded by a guy called a centurion. Okay? So Cornelius is a relatively high-ranking Roman military official. Then we learn something about his religion. Okay, so so what we know, he's Roman. So is he Jewish? No, he's a Gentile. Because anybody who's not Jewish is Gentile, right? So he's a Gentile. Verse 2 tells us this. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. We're going to get into that here in just a moment, but I think 
it's not going to make a whole lot of sense if I don't paint a little picture. Again, not literally because I can't do that. But paint a little picture of the cultural context here. The idea of, uh, of um, Cornelius being a Gentile is extremely important. See, God's plan from all time had included Gentiles. God's plan was not just for the Jewish people. It was for all peoples, including non-Jewish people or Gentiles. Even way back when God makes a promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. Yes, he's going to start with one man that will, that will turn into one nation, but God's plan through them is to bless all the people on the face of the earth. Right? So it's not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. But at this time, it was hard for Jewish people, even Jewish people who had become Christians, to conceive of God doing any kind of saving work in a Gentile. Because they had been raised and passed down from century, from generation to generation through the centuries were a number of prejudices. And so John Stott, I think, summarizes it in a helpful way. Here's what he says. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. Okay? So, so that's the context. A century, centuries-old religious and racial prejudice that existed, but God is about to do something that will turn the church upside down. A church made up at this point of almost exclusively Jewish Christians. And God is about to do a work in a way that's going to cause Jewish Christians, like Peter, to come face to face with the fact that God's plan is not only to save Jews, but also Gentiles. We're going to get into this in more detail in the next week, but here's how the stage gets set. In verse 3, it tells us a bit more. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. So this would be different. Normally, if an angel of God is being sent as a messenger to talk to somebody, that person is going to be a Jewish person. This is not a Jewish person, yet an angel sent by God comes to Cornelius. It's during the hour of prayer. Presumably he's praying because we're told he prays continually to God. He sees clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And the normal reaction to angels is, his reaction, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, so here's the angel talking, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Peter sees a paralyzed man in Lydda, and he does take part in God's healing work. Peter was sent for, while he was in Lydda, he was sent for by some people in Joppa who said, go get Peter. And so Peter says, okay, I'm coming. And he comes and takes part in God's work of resurrecting 
this dead woman. And now Peter is going to be summoned again. This time, not going to be quite so comfortable. Peter is going to be summoned to come to Caesarea and invited into the home of a Gentile who needs to hear the gospel. Peter going to go? That's what we'll look at next week. A quick couple points of application to close. Number one, let's pray that God's work in one will lead to many turning to Him. That's what we saw for Aeneas and for Tabitha, and we're going to see it for Cornelius as well. That God does a work in one, and that work that God does in one then leads to many turning to Him. Here, God's work was miraculous. Can God still heal the sick and raise the dead? Certainly He can, right? It sure seems like He gave special authority to the disciples to do that work at that time, so we see it happening over and over again there. But here's the reality. God continues to do the miraculous work of giving new life spiritually to those who are spiritually dead. That's a miraculous work that God has done in all sorts of people, like sitting here and standing here right now. Once spiritually dead and now made alive. Once an orphan and now adult. Like that, that work, that's a miraculous work of God. And it sometimes happens, doesn't it? That that work of God happens in one person who lives among all sorts of other people who do not yet know that God. I just think of even last week, uh, last weekend when Pastor Nick was up here talking about just his own family's story of how, how his mom and dad came to faith in Christ and that led to his dad growing immensely as a disciple of Jesus, kind of leading his family with joy, and then his mom uh, being someone who then committed herself to just praying for hours for her children. So see, there you've got one or two people turning to Jesus, God's saving them, and the result we, as we expect will be years of fruitful ministry by one of those people, right? Pretty amazing. And so wh- what that says to me is that parents, i got to take a drink. Parents, we need to keep praying for our kids, right? Yeah, like we need to bring them to stuff and make sure they get educated, like all that stuff. That stuff's important. But we need to be praying for our kids. We need to love them and point them to Jesus. And church, I think we need to be thinking, too, of unreached families in our areas. There's, there's whole family groups living in this area where not a single person in that family group knows Jesus. And here's kind of the cool connecting point that we have with a number of them. They have some kids that are coming to youth group and some kids that are coming to Awana. And are we praying enough? And are we, are we well, like ready to invite into our home whole families because we've seen this happen before, haven't we? Where the first person that God saves is not mom or dad, it's one of the kids. And one of the kids is then used by God so that this entire family group that had no, no, like, no hearing of the gospel on their radar screen in any way sees what God is doing in their child and a whole family comes to faith in Jesus. We need to be praying that that would happen. And we need to continue to pray, too, for unreached peoples around the world. Some of you have downloaded that uh, Unreached of the Day app from 
Joshua Project just gives you, here's one unreached people group in the world. And I hear stories over and over again of how with an unreached people group, it just takes one person hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus, starting to grow and live in a totally different way. And then that starts to affect all sorts of other people in what used to be an unreached people group. And it starts with one person. It starts with prayer. The second and final application point is this. Good religious people need to hear the gospel. Good religious people need to hear the gospel. Cornelius, he was a good dude. Like, you would have wanted him to be your commander in the Roman army, right? He was a man who feared God. He was generous. He gave alms, and and he prayed continually. He was a good religious man. But he wasn't saved, right? He had not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and repented and turned to him in faith. You could read about that in 11.14 where we find out, hey, that still needs to happen. So here's a challenge. Cornelius does some good stuff, does some religious stuff, and believes some true stuff about God. But that's not enough. And so I want to encourage us not to be satisfied if we have a family member or co-worker or neighbor who's like, hey, they're, they're pretty good people. They believe some true stuff about God and they do a few religious things. Okay, but that's not enough, right? They need to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you, like sitting here today. Maybe that's you, like, hey, that that guy, like, I fear God. I try to be generous with what God gives me. I do some religious things. I mean, I'm here in church, right? Like, I'm here. I'm so grateful that you're here. But Cornelius needed to hear the gospel, and so do you. The good news that that you being here doesn't save you, Right? That doing religious things and trying to be good doesn't save you, but that we can only be saved by the perfect work that Jesus did on our behalf and by His atoning, substituting death on our behalf and through His resurrection. Do you, do you trust in Jesus? We're not, we're not aiming to produce a whole bunch of good religious people who believe some true things here. We're, we're looking to see... God save spiritually dead people and make them alive together with Christ. That's a supernatural work. And if the Holy Spirit is doing a kind of work in your heart that today you're just like, I, I don't know, something's going on. I can't explain that. You say Holy Spirit, I don't know what that but, but there's something that God needs to do. And I think one of the purposes He has us here today is that, that He might be doing that work in one of you. And for many of us, it's a work that's already been done. I'm grateful that Jesus continued, Jesus' work continued, even after He ascended to heaven. I'm grateful that it continues through people like Peter and through people like us. Like, 2,000 years later, God's still working in and through weak and wounded people like us. I'm grateful for that. Uh, I can say some more stuff. Let's just pray. Let's pray, and then we'll sing together.
Hi, Father. I'm, I'm really thankful because I'm just uh, one of many who are just evidence of your miraculous saving work. <laughs> now, we're going to sing a song now that's kind of like a, a testimony song. and It's a testimony that many of us already have. Like we once were lost in darkest night. We thought we knew the way. Like we thought we had it all figured out. And God, I know there's probably some people in here, that, that's kind of been their life up till now. They thought they had it all figured out. They've tried hard to do pretty good stuff. But God, I pray that we would all recognize that on our own, we're just all headed to hell until you come and save us. You come and turn us around. So I thank you, God, that you've done that work in me and in so many others here. I pray that this song that we sing might be the testimony of us and others who have yet to come to faith in Jesus. Thank you that Jesus, who never sinned, took our sin on himself. Thank you that he bore the punishment that we deserve so that we could have life. And I pray that you'd help us to rejoice in your saving work this week, even starting now as we sing this song, which is our testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.